with nearly every success, there is a line of failures and setbacks, sometimes a very long line. Many of those stories get condensed into pithy journeys that minimize the struggle. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azalay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about triumph and disaster that Mark's guests faced and how they overcame the adversity to shine. Now, here's your host, Mark Azalay. Welcome to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm so happy to have my good friend and colleague, Jeff Grossman, on the show today. I first met Jeff at a, a group therapy conference, and let me tell you, I really wish you guys could see him because he does not look like your typical therapist. He's like the Captain America of psychotherapy. You know, when I think of a therapist, I think of like, you know, the person who's like an outcast like myself, kind of weird, right? Kind of like scrawny. But then this guy comes by and he looks like an all-American quarterback. So I had to get to know him. I had to meet him. Once I met him, I realized he told the story of being a huge car salesman before becoming a psychotherapist. And I was hooked immediately. So Jeff's going to be on the show today. He's going to tell us a little bit about that career change. And then we're just going to wrap for a while talking about masculinity, talking about narcissism, talking about the business of psychotherapy. We'll see where it goes. Jeff, welcome to the show. Mark, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So can you tell people a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I was thinking I was hearing your intro, which I really enjoyed. This is the first time I've heard it and uh, I like it. I was trying to think about, uh, you know, how I got to where I am today, like where where to start talking to you and to your audience. And I was aware um, I did not get a I did not get a grade other than an A until college. And uh, I was thinking about this idea of like the first time I can. I'm sure I failed plenty, but in school, I was very successful. Um, Went to school over on the East Coast in Charlottesville, Virginia, at UVA, uh, University of Virginia. And um, I remember I failed in those, a couple of those grades pretty dramatically. I got a, uh, uh, an F in computer coding and I got an F in uh, 401 antitrust. Um, so when I'm, it's, I'm, 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 I'm all, I'm all in or all out, man. So it's either like A's or F's. So if that, if that helps people have a picture of, uh, what kind of student I was. Um, yeah. So anyway, those are, I remember, man, those were devastating days getting those uh, bad grades, but uh, I'm still here. <laughs> you're a man of extremes, right? Like black or white. Either yeah. you're about it or you're not. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think before I get into the car part, so um, yeah, grades were, you know, I, I grew up in a, a family. My mom was a dental hygienist and my dad was a teacher. And so I would say there wasn't a lot of business acumen that I grew up with. You know, it was kind of like a, I would call it like a blue collar family. And I think, you know, I just probably thought I'd do something blue collar. Like I wasn't entrepreneurial at the time. I'd just get a job. And so when I was leaving uh, UVA, uh, they Home Depot came and recruited. And so, you know, big name company. When I tell people I work at Home Depot, both the jobs I did, people think, uh, you know, you're like working a cash register at Home Depot. Yeah. Um, so but that's not, out like that's not exactly, four. you know, so like I, I went to Atlanta where Home Depot is headquartered and that was my first job. Uh, it was called the business leadership program. Pretty catchy. Mm. And so the, the catch was you did four different stints in the company. And then if you did well, they hired you on. I guess if you didn't, they let you go. And one of the one of the stints was in the store. And so for six months, I actually then did work. I mean, it, it is important, I think. Now I know. I don't know that I understood that then, but 
you know, you have to understand the kind of the core of what the business is. And so the, the story I was thinking I could tell you about my experience at the Home Depot was I, um, I'm in the store and one day all of the garden employees called out sick. And so I remember the store manager was just like, listen, man, you're, you're responsible for the garden department, you know, like, so the garden department's like everything from like grills to patio furniture to plants, uh, lawn mowers. All of them called out sick? Everybody. Every single one. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, Hey, you know? Uh, and so there I was, you know, trying to do it all. And man, I have a really clear memory of doing that where, you know, I was really, I was decent at being able to tell people where things were, but when someone would ask me to help them make a decision, I remember having a ton of fear and shame around that. Um, and I think it, it had to do with some version of recommending the wrong thing or helping them make a bad decision. And uh, yeah, I specifically remember there was a, a woman that was asking me about which lawnmower to buy or blower or something like that. And I remember I said something trite, like uh, you get what you pay for. And you could see the look on her face, which is like, you're an idiot kind of look. And I remember it like she knew that I didn't know. I knew that I didn't know. And just it was just ah, like that part of like having to recommend something was uh, outside of my skill set at the time. Yeah, this idea of being exposed. I'm hearing this like imposter syndrome thing that was going on for you. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I, it, it ended up being a, uh, I think I, I look back on it now. I probably learned a lot about being with people and kind of like selling things to people there. That was probably my first time where I was like having to convince someone else, uh, this idea of like to buy something. Um, and so ironically, uh, I ended up, I, I stayed an extra year at the Home Depot. And then my wife, who I'd met in college, uh, she's from Nashville and she's a singer songwriter. And she wanted to go home, uh, both home and the singer songwriting, which both happened in Nashville. And my father in law owned a car dealership. And so he had kind of promised uh, her that she'd inherit it one day. It seemed like a good move for us, kind of to know what we might inherit one day. So, when we moved back, I went to work selling cars at the car dealership. And what was that like? Like, were you a car guy before? Did you know anything about cars? Did you care? Yeah, it's, it is. It's a good question. I, I wasn't handy and I went to go work at the Home Depot. I wasn't a car guy and I didn't care about cars and I went to work at a car dealership. So, uh, yeah, that's a, the, the thing. And I will probably get to this at some point. You know, uh, my first job out of college, I was making... a year working at the Home Depot, which to me, you know, like coming out of college, ton of money. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so, um, but it's, it's a, it, it fell in line with the way that I thought about working, which is you go to work and like every two weeks, every month, you're going to get this like paycheck and you're, so that's kind of what I would call like the employee month. And so when I went to work at the car dealership, the car dealership, the one that I was going to work at was a 100% commission. And so if you didn't sell, you did not get paid. Um, 
And so, you know, they like for two months, the first two months you're there, they know, like you got to learn so that, you know, they put you on this, like, uh, they have, they have negative names for it, but we'll call it a, a draw. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And so then the first, I, I'll never forget the first month that I was actually on commission, 100% selling cars. I think I made like $11,200 the first month I was selling cars. And, uh, there's something about that that is like a pure shot of whatever good thing you want to inject into your arm. And like from there, I was hooked. So, yeah, that good, good, good uh, stroll down memory lane on uh, how I kind of got to the car business and then how I kind of got probably hooked into the car business. Yeah. Can you tell us more about the hook? Yeah, for me, I think if you think for me, I think there's something about this idea of I worked hard at the Home Depot, a lot of hours and made $4,000 a month doing it. And so then to work probably less hard and make like triple in a month. Uh, I think the hook for me is I grew up in, you know, like the Midwest, Columbus, Ohio, this like, um, yeah, the culture is going to be you, you will make what you're worth or, you know, like hard work pays. And then I think the hook for me suddenly becomes this idea that like, oh, that isn't entirely true. There's this some part of like luck in some part of if you can sell something, you can get paid way more money than the hard work that I was doing in the past. So that probably was the hook to me is like, wait, you can make this much money in a month. Um, and that would be probably my hook. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I think that's one of the tough truths that I had to learn too, right? Of like, it's not just hours in, it's not just sweat on your brow. It's actually like, is this industry that people care about, right? Is it something that has like consumers that are wealthy? Like there's so much that goes into business rather than just like, hey, can you just work, you know, 80, 100 hours a week? Yes. And finding, yeah, there is like, you know, money is definitely a part of why most people work and kind of figuring out that equation for me and you and how that works, I think was a big part of what I had to grow into understanding. Yeah. I mean, for me, the big thing was realizing that the world wasn't a meritocracy, right? That like the best person doesn't get paid the most, or doesn't get the best job, you know, because I was a really shy kid. So I had to learn how to talk. I'd learn how to sell. I had to learn how to be charismatic. I'd learn how to be persuasive because what I found is like, that's where the reward is, right? It's more about who you know. It's more about who you, you can influence. It's more about, you know, how can you make that deal happen? I think I'm still learning that. But yeah, something in that vein is, I think, part of what I was learning really on in the car, car business. Yeah. Can you say something about that? Because you talked about feeling insecure about selling at the Home Depot, right? And now you're in a sales job, right? And a 100% commission-based sales job on top of that. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Like, when I think back to this compare and contrast, like I had this other story. Um, I told you, I read some stuff just to kind of catch myself up and kind of remind myself, I have this other story. Um, I think the other thing that I think a lot about um, when I was going to work at Home Depot, it's a first job. So I'm not sure that I was super worried about what my purpose or meaning was with my work. It was more just like, go and do this thing. And so I think as I was leaving that thing and had experienced some dissatisfaction at Home Depot, 
I was leaving thinking like, I'm going to make more meaning out of what I do. And so one of the things, just because I'm typically, I would, I would call myself pretty financially conservative. I typically am going to be pretty light on the amount of debt, personal debt I'm willing to take on. And so I was kind of, if you're familiar, there's a famous guy here in Nashville, his name's like Dave Ramsey. And he does this like financial peace university. And he kind of has a whole program. I think it used to be radio. It's probably bigger, but it's about like not doing debt. And that was kind of like, sometimes when I hear, I don't, I'm not that familiar with it, but I kind of like think like I embodied a lot of what some he says, which is like anti-debt, but yet I'm going, I didn't know this at the time, but I'm going into this business that is the car market. And the car market is basically all about financing and payments. And so I'm, (laughs) yeah. So I think one of the things that I was probably thinking going in is one of the ways that I can be a value add or be a service as a consultant is I'll help people make really good financial decisions. And so I remember early on, you know, like I'm, you know, the, the typical process is someone comes onto the car lot. This is kind of the internet is just nowadays, I'm sure people have found their car before they ever show up. But when I was starting, people would actually just come on the car lot and sometimes they would leave with a totally different car than they thought. Like there was a lot more of just like coming to buy a car rather than the car. And so the, these people, they drove in, I think on, in a Kia and they wanted. I remember we like test drove a couple of cars. They kind of fell in love with one. And inside of that, uh, we came back, we did a credit app, we appraised their car. And so then they were like, let's say $10,000, $15,000 upside down in their car. And so I remember I, I pulled them aside in my office, spent like 30 minutes with them, explaining to them like what it means to be upside down, like uh, what the best thing that they could do was. I printed like amortization tables, talked about making principal payments on their car. And uh, when they left, I was like, you know, they won't be able to get their new car, but two or three years, they'll get themselves right. And they'll, you know, make good decisions. And then I remember later that night, they came driving back in a new Kia. And I remember thinking like, oh, like I remember, I remember my heart like breaking, like sinking uh, to some degree around just this idea that what I probably wanted or hoped my purpose to be in selling cars was not going to be what it was going to be. Yeah. Did that continue? My, my, I think, I feel like I, it it was like the, it's like in life you have these lessons and from that lesson or from the hurt or the pain, I think you make a vow. And I think for me at that point, I'm making the vow, which is like, I don't know that this job is about helping people. This job is going to become about making money. Yeah. Yeah. You saw where it flipped right there, right? The values had changed. So, uh, so yeah. And so over the next 10 years, I went from selling cars to um, managing the internet department. We, uh, we acquired the smart car dealership. I ran the smart car dealership, which at the time was kind of, it was a, it was like back when gas went way up. So like the smart cars were in big demands. So um, it was not the ideal job, but I learned a lot because I did 
in running a smart car dealership, I was in charge of sales, parts, and service. And so then I think later on, when I moved to more of a management role of the dealership, I had already had experience working in these different facets of the dealership. So I was somewhat prepared. It ended up working out really well. And so, uh, yeah, just, uh, yeah, we ended up, we were there for a couple, several years. We were the largest Chevy dealership in the state of Tennessee. Um, made a lot of money and the times it was terrible and other times it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So I get so curious, right? You have this successful car business, right? You're learning every step of the process. You're learning how to sell. Why therapy? Yeah. yeah. Like why switch? Yeah. Well, yeah. Two things. One, um, I was doing like the car business is a known marriage killer. And so in my marriage, we were having difficulties. Her family was having difficulties and then just the hours, the anxiety. And so I was, I started in 2008 or 2009 doing counseling and really credit a lot of it for helping save my marriage. Uh, yeah. And so that is, that's my first exposure to probably, if we go back to this idea of being helpful, I wanted to be helpful. The car business, I was not going to be super helpful probably to, you still can be, but it wasn't for me, it wasn't probably the type of help I wanted to offer. And so probably some version of a quest to like do good. Yeah. Let's expand more about that in our second segment. Uh, we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. And before we do, you know, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, hit us with that hashtag from the ashes. We're really trying to make this podcast pop, right? It's new. It's early. We're episode three. I would love to get this going in the right direction. Um, also feel free to email us at podcast at mark-asley.com. If you want to hear more from Jeff, or if you have any questions, if you want to hear him back, you know, for a panel or anything like that, um, to get the conversation started. So stay tuned and we'll catch you on the other side of the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are the experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azoulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azoulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? 
the Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay. I'm sitting here with Jeff Grossman talking about how he transitioned from being a car salesman to a counselor. Now, <laughs> I'm sure I don't have to explain it, but those are very different jobs. You know, those are very, very different. And Jeff was telling us a little bit about how the car salesman job was hurting his marriage, impacting his family life, and how he had this growing desire to help people. Jeff, can you pick it up from there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was thinking like one of the things maybe that I'm not doing as good a job describing is I think as the car business became more and more about making money. I think inside of me, I started to have a lot more anxiety about making money. And so, uh, you know, if you think about, if I think about the costs of anxiety to me, um, it's hard because those, that's, these are, this is years ago, but man, I began, I like was unable to eat, unable to sleep, um, working like 70 to 90 hours a week, you know? And so like the, the cost of that on my body was super high. And I think then it also then took a toll on my ability to like be present and connect in my marriage. And so that's where I think I'm going and uh, I'm like realizing I need help and I need help uh, as I have this kind of constant desire to work more and make more money to really uh, do this other thing that I want and don't know how to do, which is stay connected to my wife and my marriage. Right. Like that starts to become a cost too right? The sacrifice becomes too great for you. It sounds like. Yeah. And I remember specifically the, the sleeping, like the inability to sleep at night, like that costs so much. And then the other thing is then when you haven't slept and you're getting out of bed to go do for me to go do a job that I don't love, like that costs, I remember it like being a weight uh, that just like lived on yeah. And I would imagine that had to be kept secret from so many people. You know, you're such a charismatic, like lovable guy. And I, I have no doubt, right. That you're going to put on that suit, right. You're going to put on that smile. You're going to get out the door and no one's really going to know that you're carrying that weight. Yeah. Yeah. Other than my wife and my therapist, I don't know who I could have been talking about, about the dissatisfaction that was like that existed in my job or just the amount of anxiety and what it cost me. Um, and so for me, yeah, there, there was really two people that I was mostly able to tell. And for the, for the rest of the world, you know, the people who work for you, uh, customers, you do kind of have to put on that smiling face and there's a cost to that as well. Right. 
yeah, there's so much of that like fake it till you make it type of thing or just, you know, put up appearances. Um, I've definitely lived in that for far too long too. I can relate with that. You were talking about going to therapy and I get interested, right? Of like, what a guy like you, how did you find a therapist? What was that like walking through the door, uh, you know, for the first session? Yeah. Well, we come out of a, we come out of a, I come out of a church background and so does my wife. And so I had already had some pretty bad experiences with what I would call like the church counseling side of things or meeting with pastors. And so someone gave us a name of a guy that we, who was a counselor and I probably had, you know, a pretty negative, I was not going to go to therapy, but it's one of those things where I think when the pain of life becomes so great, and you're able to recognize that you need some type of help. Um, so my wife and I went together for six months to this guy um, who was helpful. And then I was done. You know, I was just like, oh, okay, it's kind of helped some, but not all that much. I'm, I quit. And so I quit going. And I remember the, la- the session, the last session we're in, you know, I'm like, I quit. This isn't that helpful. You're not that helpful. And I remember, uh, you know, he said to my wife, Kelly, he's like, do you think this is helpful? She's like, yeah, I really like doing this. He's like, well, why don't you keep doing it? And and they like both looked at me and like, can she keep doing it? And I was like, sure, you know. And so uh, fast forward like six months, eight months, a year, I had stopped going. Kelly's still going to therapy. And I could, I could, I was watching my wife like grow as a person. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. She was, and, and so then inside of me, like the one, the one feeling I was always good at was fear. And I was, it was like, I had gone to this thing to save my marriage. My wife is like growing beyond developing as a person past me. And I remember thinking like, if I don't get back in there, I'm going to get left behind. Like, this is like the worst case scenario. Right. So yeah, eight months, nine months, 10 months later, I go back, uh, you know, and I remember she was like, I don't know that he wants to have you back. I don't know. He's going to let you. And I'm thinking like, what's like, we pay this guy. Of course, he's got to do what we say. Right. And so uh, I remember I went back and it was like this, this, this production of like, I don't know if I'm going to let you back in. I, I'm thinking like, what is this? And I remember he said, okay, I'll take you back on, but you have to join one of my groups. Okay. Yeah. And then there we go, man. And that was the beginning. That was the seed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was it. And so he got me in a group and I haven't stopped doing group therapy and I haven't started stopped doing therapy since. And that was what, 2010, 2011. So here we are talking about me now becoming a therapist. Yeah. So how did you make that switch? Right. You're in it. It's benefiting you. When were you like, I want to do this, right? Like I want to be that guy. Yeah. So the, the, the family dealership, uh, he's, I, I probably, so that I don't give myself too much credit. It, the family sold the dealership. So this asset that I thought we would inherit uh, is liquidated. And so I went someplace else for a year, ran the dealership there. Um, It became super clear that the meaning was now completely gone. And so actually, I think I got fired from that dealership. And then I was like, okay, I've got to do something that I would wake up and be excited about in the morning. That was the driver. And I think for me, I loved, I had learned that I loved group therapy. Like there's something about the realness of sitting in a circle. My, my groups were all men. So it was like 
doing group, it felt like college for me, which was a big part of my college. It's just like, it was like real and authentic and I loved it. And so I thought, man, if I could see myself waking up and doing one thing, it would be doing group therapy all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's the dream, right? Like <laughs> I run four groups, right? Two of them are men's groups. Two of them are groups for other therapists uh, that are mixed. Uh, tell me about the men thing. Cause I think we need to talk about masculinity now, right? Like how do men do therapy differently? What do we need? Cause I do think it's really different. I, you might have more insight to, into it. I wish I like, for me, uh, if, if I think back, I think it's one of those things, like it's asking a fish about water. Like everything that I did was male, like was men, you know, like I'm thinking sports growing up. I'm thinking working at the Home Depot, you know, that's going to be a pretty male, like being in a fraternity. You know, I lived with 10 guys for three years in college. I lived with five guys when I graduated working at a car dealership. It's all men. Everything that I did was just guys. And so, of course, for me, when I go to a group and it's all guys, it just fit. And so I don't know that I can necessarily tell you what it is about guys uh, together and the masculine component of it. It's just what I knew. Right. That's like your default. Yeah. My story is the opposite, right? I was, you know, certainly raised by women, right? Had a lot of female friends growing up. I had to find masculinity, right? I wasn't in sports, right? I was like a nerd. So, you know, I talked to guys online, but they weren't the most masculine men and neither was I, right? So I had to inject that into my life. Um, mainly, I mean, first was actually through AA because the AA groups I went to were almost all men. Yeah. Um, and then through like, you know, adventure sports and, and outdoor stuff, right? Like finding a really good group of men that I can go backpacking with and actually spend that time. And, you know, there's something about men I found that we bond by doing, right? There's something about that shared mission that I find really attractive. There's something about where, you know, we'll go, we'll like crush a mountain, right? Or you'll play a sports game. And then there's like that after period where you can actually finally talk about stuff. But like, you need to have that like war, right? You need to have the battle beforehand to really bond on a level. Um, when it came to just talking in a circle in a mixed gendered group, I would often feel empty, even though I'd be doing emotional stuff and, and connecting with people. I sometimes feel empty without that shared mission or without that sense of camaraderie. You know, I think it's like a real thrust on a, on a physical level first, and then the emotional trust comes in. Yeah. Yeah. As you're talking about it, you know, I was, as I was in therapy and working on myself, I would say one of the main things that I was working on was just the ability to have and identify feelings. And so for me, it probably worked out well to start with all men who are also, I mean, I, not to stereotype most men, but at least a lot of the men uh, that I was in groups with in the South were working on things that were really similar. And so it was probably a really good thing for me that I was getting baptized in the world of feelings with a bunch of other people who were struggling with feelings. And so maybe that was the part of my groups that held the masculine component is just this, no one was ever asking us to feel or to talk about things in a vulnerable way. Right, there's like that common ground, right? Of seeing other people that struggle with the same thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I same thing. I remember early on in my therapy, having that, you know, but then I'd say, hey, well, how do you feel about that? Or how does that make you feel? And I felt dumb, right? I felt like clumsy. I yeah. felt like just 
disconnected, I didn't have an answer. I still feel that way most of it. You've grown past me, but yes, uh, I still, that is a, yeah, you're just describing what it's like for me every day, but yeah, 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 that's it. Like I, yeah, for me, I think feelings were not, I I see now how important they are um, in connecting with everyone, uh, specifically with Kelly, with my wife. It has uh, significantly shifted my ability to be present and love her and her ability to be present and love me but I don't know that I do the best job with everyone else. I can still put my guard up. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it, right? I mean, we're all kind of works in progress. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think like uh, my first therapy groups were very different than the therapy groups that I do now. Um, You know, the inner, the, the interpersonal modern analytic process group is very different. The group that I was in um, it was a timed group. And so for me, I think that was, uh, if you go back to like thinking like I was super therapy resistant, I was super feedback resistant. You know, I think if my parents had taken me to a counselor when I was younger, I probably could have been diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. And so like that ability of like, uh, to, to receive into like process is very difficult for me. Like I want to discover myself rather than have someone tell me what's true about me. And so the groups that I was in, it was a 20 week group. And, uh, for the first eight weeks, we, uh, the first two weeks, you, um, make the five worst memories of your life and you write them down on a piece of paper and you come in, in one of the groups, everyone's talking about like these worst memories of your life, which again, you know, you got to think like, it's so weird because who, like, I've never made this list. Yeah. Who the hell wouldn't share the list. And so, um, and so then you're doing that the first two weeks, like you, you pick it off with that. Weeks. It's like, what's the worst thing you can never think about? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's yeah, start yeah. there. Let's yeah. get And So, you know, maybe that was his way of breaking down, uh, what was resistant in the group. And then, uh, you pick one of those memories and you write a two page story about one of those memories and read it in the group. And then people kind of give you feedback and have feelings about it. And so that is the first 10 weeks of the group. And then from there, you have another eight weeks to do either experiential stuff or uh, processing. So that was that was my first group. And I remember at the end, like if I could say there was one thing that I got feedback on, it was like people were scared of me. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, am I allowed to cuss on here? Yeah. Okay. It was like, I remember thinking like, fuck those guys. Yeah. I'm not like what's wrong with those people that they're scared but i signed up for another group so again like i'm i'm continuing and the the group is completely new you know it's like a new platoon and we do the same thing again and at the end of the second one everyone gives me the same feedback you get the same thing yeah oh the exact same feedback like you're you're a scary person you create fear in me like you don't seem and i'm like you know the second time i was like it's so much hard, you know, like it's so much harder that second time to get that dose. And, uh, yeah. Not think that it's not about you, but I, I held on and I was like, nah, there's something wrong with those guys. And then I did, I did it the third time. I did it the third time, Mark. And the third time I got the feedback from eight different guys, I was, that was when my therapy started because I knew I had something I needed to work on. 
Yeah, yeah. That's what I love about you, Jeff. That you're like that. You're both like fuck all these guys, and I'm gonna do it again. I'm gonna do another like tour of duty here. Yeah. Do it another time. I mean, oh my god. But it finally got in. You finally got the memo that there was something that was not about you know what, what was it at that point like twenty other people it wasn't all there. It, it just took it just took forty five weeks of therapy and uh, thirty people telling me like I have a problem for me to actually see and think I have a problem. Yeah. Well, as we're going into our next break, uh, we'll be talking more about that. I'm interested in, yeah, the parts of you that were scary, right? What, how other people, how listeners might be able to recognize them in themselves and how you did to really address those parts and, and you know, heal from that. Um, I remember God, I, the feedback I got in group was that I was, I'm just confusing, which I'm still getting in the group that we're in, that it's like hard to connect with me, right? Like I seem to want a lot, but don't seem to know how to get it. I get all that all the time. So I'll, I'll talk about that in the next segment. So for those listening, uh, thanks for listening so far. Please stay tuned over the next commercial break. We'll be talk, hearing more from Jeff, uh, talking more about his journey in group psychotherapy and some of the benefits of group. So tune in and we'll talk to you on the other side of the break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are the experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azoulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azoulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. For teens, by teens, and about teens, tune into the uncensored and unedited discussions with young adults on Express Yourself every Sunday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Smart, tenacious teen hosts and reporters from around the country speak up and speak out. Express Yourself. Visit the website for the show to find out more at expressyourselfteenradio.com and check out the show on the Voice America Empowerment Channel every Sunday. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azalay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azalay.com. Now back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm Mark Azalay. I'm sitting here with Jeff Grossman. We're just talking about his experience in group psychotherapy. He goes through you know, a 20-week group. Everyone says that they're afraid of him. He says, fuck those people. And then does it again. He gets the same feedback, tells him to go fuck himself again. Does it one more time, gets the same feedback, and then finally realizes that maybe there's something going on with him. Now, I was laughing, Jeff, when we were talking during the break. I'm the exact same way, right? Like, I need something hammered into my head so many times. And I join these groups and do this therapy stuff and do the self-development stuff on faith, almost. Like, I've seen it you know, make change for people that I really respect in my life. And I've seen it make change in myself, although really, really slowly and oftentimes kind of disappointingly, but it does happen. Um, So I'm curious for you, when you reach that moment of realizing, hey, there's something going on here. Can you tell us about that? Like what made you so scary? What was going on inside you that you projected that out to other people? Yeah, man, you're, you're like asking me to go into the deep water of like, why, what was I so scared, like afraid, or what what made me so scared that rather than deal with it myself, it was better to create fear in other people? Well, I don't know that I have a great answer to that question still, all these years later, but you know, something along the lines of being a failure, being a disappointment, you know, it was probably. If we even go back to the first story of selling something at the Home Depot, like I was probably so scared of feeling my own shame that I would do anything to not have to tolerate that, to put it outside of myself. Right. You have to hurt other people, right? It's a way to keep those defenses up and to keep them away from you and push them away. Yeah. Yeah. Not to be seen. Yeah. And it comes with a high cost, you know? Yeah, I think if we, if we believe that interpersonal connection is what heals, like attachment is what heals, like probably in the ways that that hurt me in the past, uh, I wasn't going to let it hurt me again. It's one of those vows you were talking about. Yeah. Right, vowing to be like, this is never going to happen again. I have a couple of those in my story too. Yeah, I have a lot of, I have a lot of those as I kind of, continue to do my work in group therapy. Uh, lots of vows around not being, um, not being certain, like, like certain figures that hurt me. Um, a lot of vows around money uh, that I think drive me. I don't know that we have time to explore all the vows <laughs> that I've both made and continue to learn about, but um, yeah, money is definitely a big one. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine you're not alone in that. And I think, you know, for listeners out there, if you're feeling 
that you have these vows. I think they're really common. I just want to normalize the whole experience, right? Because we're young, we're reckless, we're trying to make sense of our world. And we make these promises to ourselves and we create these bright red lines in our psyche of like, yeah, I'm never going to go there. I'm never going to be this person. I'm never going to do this thing. I'm never going to feel this way again. And those are ways to protect ourselves. But then they often create problems down the line because life isn't black and white, right? I think the scary thing for me is there's this weird way where the vow is against some imprint that is being made on you. And if you don't figure out some way to work on it, you become that thing. Right. There's like a self-fulfilling prophecy or like a curse almost. Yeah. Yeah. I think about it now is like most of the things that I really took vows against, I really still, even as I made that vow, I can see that I just slowly become, you know? Yeah. Because it's still an organizing factor in your life, right? Like, I associate, you know, I'm in recovery and there's so many people who, you know, they call dry drunks, right? Where they, they say that they're sober, but really their whole life becomes about not drinking, yeah. right? So your life is still about alcohol, but it's more about like being aggressive about not drinking rather than being aggressive while drinking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and I think for me, like, as I continue Uh, my journey in therapy, I have tried to shift this kind of like part of my life that seems to control it still, which is like my relationship with money. And man, I feel like the more therapy I do, the more ways that I see it's like webbed inside of me. And I oftentimes wonder like, is this going to help? Like, is there any fixing the way in which I was built and created? Or is it just something that really will always be with? Right. Yeah. Can you tell the listeners more about your relationship with money? Yeah. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with safety and security. And so I think early on, probably in my early development, not feeling entirely safe and secure. And so money, I think even from the, I had my first job when I was probably nine years old. And so like, just there was something about it. I felt like if I had money, I was going to be safe. So I think then you take that and play that out over 31, 32, 33 years. Like that's just a narrative that I've created for myself. And it's not something that you can just kind of like swipe away. It's like what makes me feel safe is having money. And so how do you start to go back and replace money as safety with something that's more meaningful? And I think that's the journey that I'm on and I have not figured it out. Yeah. I think that's really the trick, right? Because we're talking a little bit, you know, before this happened, it's like a process addiction, right? Like you need money, right? I think it'd be foolish to be like, oh yeah, you could just abstain or that money doesn't create safety because it does. We live in America, we live in a capitalist society. It is safety, it is power, right? It is the ability to have, you know, get good medical treatment, right? Or go on a great vacation or, you know, buy a home that will really support you and your family in a good part of town. Like all that stuff is real, like 100% real. Yeah, the, the, the truth of it is that there are ways and times where it is very, it makes me safe. And it's the excess of it, the not being able to identify when enough is that's the real problem. And that, yeah, for me, that's the, that is the problem. It's like not being able to say like, I am safe. 
or I have enough of this. And so this, it's this constant, gotta have more, gotta get more. Right. Gotta be more safe. Right. There's never like a good enough or a satisfaction satisfied area of it. Yeah. yeah. You know, let's see if you can share this. Uh, I was, you know, when you were talking in group about it, I related to my own struggles with marijuana, particularly, you know, I did a bunch of drugs, but weed was the one that I was probably the most attached to. We talk about kind of attachment styles. And I remember really being in a relationship with weed, right? Like it actually being my girlfriend or being my mother or being kind of all of it all together, right? It was something that I could go to that would soothe me, that would, you know, help me mostly regulate, right? Like there were the sexual component, like I would masturbate when I was smoking. So there was like that weird kind of like eroticism connected to it. You know, if I was nervous to like go out or be in public, be at a party, I would smoke beforehand. So it's kind of like my date at a party, right? It's like, oh, it's, you know, it's Mark and weed together. And my therapist at the time really highlighted that to me of looking at the thing as an attachment figure, looking at it as a character, not just as like the drug. And I don't think I've cried more in a therapy session since that one. I'm just seeing like how wrapped up I was in connecting to a, to a drug, right? Connecting to a plant and how I had used that to keep myself alone, quite frankly, right? I had used that to, to meet these needs that I really wanted to find, you know, in a girlfriend, in a, in a wife someday, right? But I was just settling for, for like a simulation. I was settling for like crumbs, right? I was settling for like a chemical feeling instead of for a real person. Yeah. Yeah, when I hear you talk, it does take me back to days where, um, you know, for me, I grew up in like a Southern church or like just a church culture. And so like one of the things that is going to be considered anathema is pornography. And so I just remember growing up, you know, like high school, college, even after college, like a lot of times the guys that I'd be with and my, you know, I'm always with guys and they're always talking about this. I, I use this pornography and I don't want to be using it. And it wasn't my thing. Like it didn't fit for me. But if I, what I started to realize was I can take money and replace it for the way they talk about pornography. And that is the thing that I continue to, to gravitate towards. I think for you, when I hear you talk about it, the thing is like, you know, like marijuana's kind of become similar. Like when I was in high school, marijuana was a definite no-go, you know, now it's become a little bit more legalized and a little bit more accepted. Uh, but um, when it comes to money, like the thing is, is like, I'm getting all this praise for the thing that I am aware that I also have as a problem. And so it's like, yeah, it just makes it, I think a little bit there, there, to my knowledge, there aren't groups that I could have gone to that are like support groups for money addicts, you know, but, uh, you know, I could definitely, I could have gone to AA meetings and just every time someone was talking about alcohol kind of replaced probably sex because it's more a process addiction. I probably should have been going to sex addiction meetings and just been thinking about money as other people are talking about sex. And I wasn't doing that, but I do it now. Some group therapy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big one, right? I, I associate to like being a workaholic, right? Something like that, where it's like, yeah, you're getting praise, you're getting money, you're getting, you're moving up the ladder, right? Like people are giving you their awards and they're applauding you, but there's this, knowing of like, this is not good for me. Yeah. This doesn't have, 
uh, yeah, there's definitely thresholds that you hit where when you hit the threshold, you, you think all like life is going to open up or something grand is going to happen. And then you hit the threshold and it's almost like it holds this bottomless emptiness. And when you can get there and stare down into that, that's kind of like that same mechanism for me with my marriage. Like, it's like, ah, like I need something different. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, these episodes go by fast. We're approaching the end of our episode here. I would love to hear from you, Jeff, in a you know, minute or less. If someone is listening and they're in a similar place to where you've been describing, what you want them to hear? What message would you like them to have? Yeah, I'm, I'm not the best at the uh, elevator pitch on doing work on yourself, but at least for me, uh, if I was to keep it short and concise, uh, while my journey in both individual and group therapy has not solved all of my things. It has helped me in the thing that is the most important, which is my marriage. And so I, I do hold that, you know, therapy has helped me significantly. So I would, that would be my, find the best therapist you can and do therapy. Yeah. Take the plunge. It really is powerful. Yeah. So that's, why we, that's why we do what we do. Right. That's right. That's right. I mean, for me, it's very meaningful, right? Uh, so we got to wrap up here. Everyone's listening. Please send us an email podcast at mark com with your thoughts, with your feedback, you know, anything you have for Jeff, any questions, I'll forward it on to him and like us on Facebook, check us out on Twitter, um, follow us on the voice America empowerment channel. We love hearing from our listeners. Um, this is an incredible project to hear powerful stories like this and really hopefully it resonates with those of you that are listening. So thanks again and see you next week. Episode three. Thank you for joining host Mark Azale for From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll have another edition of the program then. Meet triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters the same. Until next time.